everyone. My name is Jing Chai, and I'm a co-host of The Pulse Podcast by Wharton Digital Health. In this episode, I discuss how to democratize healthcare and make the process more efficient and effective with Aaron Bali, the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Health. Carbon Health is an omnichannel healthcare network with the mission of providing simple, smart, and accessible healthcare to patients across a variety of access points, including clinics, pop-up sites, and via telehealth platforms. Carbon Health recently received $100 million in Series C funding and is expanding rapidly, increasing its patient volume by sixfold and clinic footprint from seven clinics to 27 clinics across six states within the past year. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Aaron started Carbon Health towards his vision to democratize healthcare and make quality care accessible for everyone. Previously, Aaron paved the way to make education accessible by founding Udemy, the world's largest marketplace for online courses with over 50 million students worldwide. In his youth, Aaron was a star mathematician, winning awards in math, physics, computer science, and chess, including at the International Math Olympiads. He still loves chess today and plays after a long day at the office to unwind. So after that sort of introduction, can you walk our audience through a little bit about your personal background. We're really excited to hear about where you grew up and how you got to where you are today. Of course. First of all, thank you for having me here. I was born in the southeast part of Turkey in a city called Malatya. Actually, I grew up in a small village in the mountains. And it might be helpful to really kind of get a sense of how it was to grow up there because I'm talking about a place which is roughly like 6,500 feet high mountainous and agriculture and just growing animals, those are really not very profitable endeavors. So the majority of the, the, the area like is actually living below the poverty line. As I was growing up, there was also some military conflict. There were Kurdish guerrillas and this. It was also like the area was practically under martial, martial law. So that further kind of made things hard. So there is all like the things that you would observe first as that most of the teachers wouldn't really want to work in that region. When I look at the stuff I'm passionate about, so sometimes people like to derive this from my story of challenging kind of places to grow up and not having enough access to education and healthcare. But the reality is I'm just as passionate about observing that there's so many extremely talented people who are in areas like this where they have no access to opportunities. If anything, at least my mom was the teacher, was a teacher. So that allowed me to kind of break on those areas. The talent is uniformly distributed. The opportunity is extremely unevenly distributed. I grew up there. So my playing chess was very important for me early on. So my father actually, he made chess pieces from like carving wood himself. And he taught me how to play chess when I was four years old. So that became my first passion. And I started getting really interested in kind of like chess as my first time I had that actual passion. My first dream was to become a world champion one day. So I didn't go this far in chess early on because as I was growing up, I started getting more interested in mathematics. So mathematics kind of took over chess for me. But there was some motivation. I was in a smaller city when I was in the high school. And there were these things called International Math Olympiad. I ended up, long story short, ended up winning the gold medal in Turkey. That's really and it was a, that was the first time somebody from like Eastern, Southeast part of Turkey had ever even gotten in the national team. So, and I think this is also showing that even if when 
there's still a big gap between the opportunities in different parts of the world. Internet actually has some leveling impact. At least everybody has access to some internet. So the moment you are online, digitally connected, like that makes a big difference. Anyway, I studied computer science mathematics and I normally was planning to be a math professor. That was my kind of intended career. But first year in college, I actually realized I like building things. I like like developing, like I like doing the creative work. I had zero idea that people start companies with the software they're building. I still thought I, I'm I mean, this was early 2000s, but I still thought things like Google and YouTube were somebody's project. Like somebody made build those things for right. fun and I thought it was happening. So I didn't realize these things are like massive businesses like for until much longer, but I just like building tools and software and I got too interested in that. So before, when I was in my last year in college, I started my first company in Turkey. That's super fascinating. Thank you for sharing all that. I think a lot of those themes resonate. It sounds like there's a lot of perseverance and hard work, but to your point, sometimes whoever is able to leapfrog, it's really a function of, of chance or, or what opportunities or circumstances you were given because the talent is everywhere in the world, as you saw in your village. And I'm curious too, is that sort of the way you grew up and knowing that access to education, especially over a platform that's as accessible as the internet, that that was a tool for unlocking talent and giving more opportunities to people? Is that what sort of led you to start Udemy? I think the common theme that you will find across almost everything I do is my brain always thinks about how can you use technology to make an essential need accessible to more people. So when I after I graduated, so my first thought was if I could really benefit from the IRC channels, unorganized kind of Celtic content just to change my life. Similarly, when people want to change their lives, learning something is usually the first step. A lot of, like, I mean, before technology, people would read the book and they get so inspired and they would start changing their lives. So I thought learning something was really the best way to initiate a change. It's not going to take you all the way there. There's no online course or book who's going to take you from slums to just being like a very successful person. That's not a one step, but it is a really, really good starting point. So, and I started thinking about like, okay, how do you make this? accessible to so many more people. And I did think about, okay, what if I start teaching mathematics and I need programming so I could maybe reach a couple hundred people, maybe a couple thousand people. But then I was observing things like YouTube and Blogger in early, like mid-2000s. And I said, if you, instead of just teaching a couple of subjects yourself, if you build a tool where any expert around the world can teach a subject to people who want to learn from that person, and this person does not have to be a teacher or a professor. It could be somebody who knows a subject. I thought if you can build that, it could actually be a, a like massive disruption in the world. The idea that like let's just build the tools for experts to share their knowledge all around the world. And I think one other thing that you touched on that I want to sort of tie to carbon health is idea around accessibility. And this mm-hmm. idea around democratizing a service that traditionally may have more barriers to entry for other people. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear how you pivoted from starting an educational startup into healthcare. So what was your thought process and what motivated mm-hmm. you to found Carbon Health? So even when I first started education, I had main themes in my mind about what I would want to work on. So education is an important thing for everybody in the world. Healthcare is probably the most ubiquitously needed uh, service, uh, banking, again, it might sound too. Yeah. Healthcare was particularly interesting for me to work on because when I remember my childhood, like even more important than education, 
lack of healthcare access was really the biggest problem. Like, I mean, I have my father has, I think, seven uncles, like two aunts. Almost none of them survived post 65. So it is like the, if you think about it, that actually is pretty much all essentially that we lost all of them when I was younger because of just simple preventable cardiac issues. But like when the nearest hospital is like so far away, so that makes a big difference. And my sister actually became a doctor. So, and I grew up with her. So she's two years older than me, but we're in the same class because I skipped two years. So she became a doctor, and all my cousins became doctors, and I had that interest. And also, my mom, when I was the CEO of Udemy in 2014, my mom had this disease called neuropsychoidosis. So she had a full body stroke, which was completely unexplained. We were going from physician to physician to understand what was happening. My sister was trying to explain the story. She had all the medical records kind of printed out, all the MR scanned and put in DVDs. And because she's a physician, she was able to. Do this properly, but observing this, I, I wasn't really that like helpful in that process. But I, I kind of saw that doctors are one of the most scarce resources of the entire world, and we are trapping them with these tools and like which are far worse than any other industry in, in, like, in the world. So, and the first thing I made was I saw all the things that they were doing. I made a sketch, like I made some designs about if I was designing a healthcare system from the ground up. How would I do this? I came up with simple ideas like every patient, all of the medical records of each patient should be organized nicely, neatly, in a structured way, and it should be agreed around the patient. The patients should uh, be able to have access to everything across all the providers. Actually, one of the inspirations for this is I still remember so in our region, a lot of people, the official language was uh, Turkish, but uh, I'm Kurdish and my Grandma, and like they did not, some of them did not even know Turkish. So the government had given all these people notebooks. So they would actually go to the doctor with notebooks, and the doctor would actually write the notes into the notebook, and a copy of this would stay in the notebook, and they would take the other copy and put it into their rack. So this way, even if you don't speak the language that well, you can go to another doctor, and they can at least read what the other doctor wrote. So this obviously has no technology, but if you think about it, it's actually a much better modeling, conceptual model for how medical records should operate, right? So across all the doctors, we have some sort of sharing. So I came up with simple ideas. It was obvious that uh, smartphone access, like automating all the administrative process would be critical. But generally, I started thinking about how would you redesign technology from the ground up? And I think I made a couple hundred sketches just for fun over uh, and Christmas break. It was essentially roughly these times of the year when I was when it was generating, and I just said, like, there's something there. And what I was disappointed was, especially in the United States, there are technology companies in the healthcare space, but they were all exclusively focused on young, healthy, affluent customers. So nobody was really building healthcare that a teacher, a real estate a retail worker can access. Everybody was building services for the Google employees and Uber employees. And uh, so that was kind of disappointing for me. I said, okay, there is this problem which affects the majority of the country, and it doesn't seem like any technology companies are kind of tackling this kind of straight up. Everybody was like trying to find the concierge, a premium customer segment to extra margins. Nobody's saying, like, how do you bring an amazing healthcare that the Walmart employees, like a firefighter, and like essentially an average person in this country, like a worker, can easily access? If anything, a lot of health systems. Uh, with the biggest brands, 
They're not even accessible to their own employees. Own employees cannot actually help get amazing kind of customer services because their insurance doesn't even cover this more kind of like high cost services. So I said it was mostly like the void in no technology company tackling this as head on as I thought somebody should be doing. That's why I decided to be hard to see for Udemy. So Udemy is still going well. So I'm still on the board. But I decided to kind of spend my majority of my time in healthcare after that, I guess, Christmas break. Wow, that's really interesting. I like the mission orientation. It sounds like a lot of what's motivated you in your life are things that you observed growing up and societal issues that you want to address through your work. I find that really compelling and really powerful, especially because it has such a personal influence on you. Curious to hear too, then, if you could help our listeners understand a bit about what Carbon Health specifically offers. I know you mentioned it's looking to target and democratize healthcare in general, not just for a segment of the healthy population, but can you walk our listeners through how you would characterize Carbon Health and its offerings? So we are a technology-enabled primary care provider with the passion uh, I mentioned. So we have physical clinics, we have virtual care services. We actually talk about this omnichannel care idea where we meet the patients wherever they need us. So if they need virtual health, we provide that if they want to need to come to clinics, we have that. Sometimes we send them as home testing kits. Sometimes we send them hardware to remotely monitor them. So it's really a kind of broad healthcare offering. And we started with primary care because that is what we consider as the biggest and the most urgent needs. So one in every four counties in the United States is still, in 2020, a healthcare desert. They don't even have access to kind of preliminary primary care type of services. And we took that model. We actually, when we started, we opened a small clinic inside our office. We rented an office, had engineers, designers, physicians, and opened a clinic inside that. And we started from first principles and reimagined every single part of the care delivery from ground up. And what we did in this plan is we, we developed the entire technology there from the way we store the medical records, the onboarding patients, scheduling, insurance billing, to all the way to, to behind the scenes machine learning systems, which predict how long appointments will take and what type of clinical systems will we need most. So it's a really comprehensive, deep technology stack. We built all from the ground up with direct observation with the patients and providers we had. And it actually kind of ended up that allowed us to approach things in a very different way because the majority of the other companies who are seen as technology-based technology healthcare companies, they usually have their surface-level technology. They have a nice website and maybe online scheduling, but they really don't have a lot of depth. So what we had done in carbon is just like Apple or companies like Tesla, we took the entire need and converted into one piece of seamless like software platform. That makes a lot of sense. And I can imagine when you are looking to streamline and optimize a lot of these facets of the customer care journey, part of it is sort of out of your control in terms of what insurance providers are willing to pay for or compensate or how much certain services from providers cost. So how were you able to sort of juggle all those pieces and be the one sort of collator to make all of those things more optimal for the consumer, knowing that so many things may be out of your control? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's probably one of the biggest differences in our approach versus what I have seen outside Carbon. Our approach was, if you want to be accessible to everyone, you cannot charge a subscription fee, like, and you have to be able to accept every single insurance. We will primarily pay by insurance, and you cannot, such a care cannot cost any more than what care costs today in an average practice. 
And what we did is instead of saying, what is the best healthcare that money can buy and try to fit this, this in today's world, we said, within today's world, within today's reimbursement levels and everything, we just dropped it like Medicare has reimbursement rates. That's the kind of amount of money you can expect to make. So within that money, within that cost structure, what's the best experience you can create? So we essentially put a hard constraint on the cost side of that. And we just really pushed hard on the R&D technology to make the customer experience better. But also we started removing administrative inefficiencies so that the doctors, the front desk people, nurses, they can really focus on what they love doing, which is helping the patients. So I think really if you just if you just want to dream in an open canvas and fit into like existing healthcare system, it's not gonna really work. You have to just say, what is realistic? And then within those constraints, what is the best I can do? Sounds like what you're describing is a bit in theme with value-based care and moving towards models where you're looking to prevent healthcare outcomes versus diagnosing or resolving pretty bad stage outcomes at the end. Is that how you see other competitors or the industry in general shifting, especially given COVID and how a lot of people have been affected in terms of having adverse healthcare outcomes recently? So value-based care is an idea that almost entire country aligns on. So I don't think anybody's disagreeing with that. Long-term providers should be really compensated by the outcome they, they create or they drive rather than just like paid by services. It's not happening as fast as people think. So you have to be able to operate in today's world, which is fee-for-service. But then we do have video-based care arrangements. And the goal is that in the next five years, the majority of our operations will move to video-based care. World. But this is not again something we are able to do. Like, Again, we are very realistic. So as this is happening in the payer side, we are more than ready. We will be, we are extremely well to be able to deliver those results. But then the of the world is still not under the value-based uh, payment modality yet. I appreciate the practicality. And I think one thing I'm also picking up on what you're sharing is you are thinking about how you can fit yourself in the current system with the view ahead into how the system may change and how you may adapt into a model that's maybe more efficacious for the end consumer. But it makes sense that you need to tailor yourself to what is realistically available to you at the time right now. And when you describe the customer or the consumer that Carbon Health is thinking about when you think about your services was it difficult and do you think it's difficult to build that trust or credibility with some of these individuals you're targeting, especially because healthcare is something that is so personal and has so much direct impact? And I would imagine there's a somewhat institutional or status quo bias towards some larger provider systems, especially if you're thinking about targeting folks who are less healthy or older. So that's a great topic to discuss. So really what happens is when you experience carbon health even once, you actually can figure out the difference. And our customer profile, like the, the target customer was essentially a neural income person, right? And we first thought that, okay, the affluent people have other type of services, so we are not even trying to compete to get them. But something very interesting about Carbon is that we have very high usage, both from one percenters who love the efficiency, the technology and everything, all the way to people living paycheck to paycheck. And those people experience the exact identical service. There's no like service fragmentation. So it's actually a fairly kind of broad group. And I think what you're what seeing is even the affluent people don't necessarily want the concierge care experience today. What they want is efficiency. I, I download the app, onboard myself with my appointment, get my care plan, my phone. That's really they want this technology driven healthcare experience. All the 
the niceties of Kusyashka doesn't really appeal to them. But this is like, as you mentioned, there are academic centers which have very kind of long-standing brands. But I think the it's critical to realize that those are accessible to a very, very, very narrow part of the audience. And even so, like it's really because they're very typically expensive. You need extremely premium insurance plans. The students sometimes can't have access because like there's a carve out for students usually in academic centers, but typically, like even the brokers on those academic centers can actually are not even able to go to like to take those services. And with COVID, what even got accelerated this, a lot of people just didn't have any access, like other than carbon. And then they came to carbon and they were so pleasantly surprised that it just we also sort of became their just their their healthcare provider. It's just really like needed one time where you cannot find access to any anywhere and you come carbon and you just realize this is so different. Like people are so compassionate. Technology is making everything feel much more human. So and there's usually no going back. So it's like we are really essentially getting gaining market share from like all other providers. That's why like they've grown our customer like patient base by roughly 10x just in a year. Wow, that's an impressive number. And hearing you describe the customer journey makes me want to try a carbon health clinic as well. But it sounds like you're sort of marrying the technology that reduces some of the admin cost for the person in terms of time wasted, as well as on the provider side. And then on top of that, you create a service that has a price point for everyone who's interested in getting a service. And you mentioned a bit about this growth that you're experiencing. And I also want to say here, congratulations on the recent Series C funding. So I know Carbon recently raised $100 million in Series C funding. How are you thinking about what's next for Carbon in terms of your expansion, services, offerings, et cetera? So the first thing we are investing in is making Carbon Health accessible to as many people as humanly possible. Our virtual care services are accessible to right now 16 of the largest states, but just telemedicine itself like it doesn't really solve the healthcare problem in the comprehensive way we want. So we want also physical locations around you. So we had seven clinics last year. I think we have 35 right now. We'll have 170 next year. Uh, and all of these, by the way, are origins like signed leases and then construction. They're all they're all have coming, right? They're not hoping to get 170. They're all happening right now, as of now. And by 2025, we should have 1,500 locations nationwide with a truly nationwide healthcare provider. So in probably more than 40 kind of 40 regions. So this is going to be by far the fastest growing healthcare service in this country. And the reason we can scale this this fastest is we took our time, we took four years, optimize the technology, optimize the operation of labor utilization and financial like construction costs, all of these things in a way that the numbers not work. So once the number works, and obviously it's the word and podcast, so a lot of people, a lot of probably business people, you can't really fix you need to understand easily in the future. You have to just fix them first before you scale because things usually get worse as you like get larger. So we, we just we did this and our model does not really rely on a place like San Francisco because we have clinics in San Francisco, LA, San Diego, Reno, a couple of other cities right now, Florida. But we also now have clinics in Mobile, Alabama. We have property clinics in Columbus, Ohio. So our business does not really rely on just high-income urban places. So really, like pretty much everywhere in the country, like they actually appreciate carbon services. That's why we are trying to grow that. So that the scale in carbon is the biggest focus, as you might imagine. But we're also just going deeper. So we're building verticalized, sometimes hardware-integrated solutions 
As an example, we launched the very first program to help COVID positive patients. There are 10 million people who are COVID positive. There was still nobody helping them recover to their full health and also can manage the risk. So it's really the only service available for COVID positive patients is going to ER and stay in ICU. So there's really nothing for everyone who's not in ICU now yet. So we are launching launch that and we are launching several other ones. We are doing clinical trials. So with large kind of biotech companies. So it's not like the primary care network we are building is really an infrastructure for a modern healthcare system that covers building. Sometimes I call this the, the technical John Hopkins or you can find other name, but like we, the clinics is just a starting point of all those the future services that we'll be building, including really kind of innovation and diagnostics, therapeutics. So, so this is the fairly, I think like this is a fairly ambitious company. And anyone who's, who wants to be in an extremely ambitious place, which is using technology and healthcare and services, everything together, like this is a great place to be. What you just described touches a word that stuck up to me earlier, which is omnichannel care yeah. and omnichannel customer experience. I know that's been a, a focus in terms of the company's directives. Can you explain a little bit about how that plays into this vision about making carbon health not just a set of telehealth services or primary care clinics, but rather something that's much more comprehensive and why you think consumers may be looking for that moving forward? So today, there are healthcare providers which usually only narrowly uh, cover certain service. Just in the, I mean, if you think about all care as primary care and secondary care, so just in the primary care world, there are primary care clinics, there are urgent care clinics which are very critical in accessibility. There's like virtual care services. There are at-home testing kits. There are hardware integrated monitoring solutions. And the problem is patients don't necessarily want to have this like six different providers only narrow serving their needs because your care needs to be managed cohesively. So the medication given by the virtual care clinician is very relevant to your next primary care visit. And same thing if you get injured and you need some sort of urgent care service, like ideally a PCP would follow up with you. So the way we are modeling this is, is like everybody has a relationship with their provider, but then all of our Clinics, virtual services, hardware, at home testing, all of them are accessible to this group of people. We've actually also invented a new modality this year. To be able to handle the COVID demand, excess COVID demand, we launched these trailers who have the support and nursing staff in them, but the doctor is available over the video. So it's a mix between a physical location, but the doctor is virtually available there. This year, we can actually like just push this to put this in a lot more locations. And patients come in, they get their kind of services. So the pop-up clinics became like one of the probably most disruptive new models of care. So we are going to do hundreds of these those alone. We are, we are doing more and more of the labs in-house these days. We are investing in diagnostic technologies. We have x-rays, we have EKGs. We now have bedside ultrasound machines, so you don't have to always go to the places. So it is already like fairly comprehensive in the service line. So and that's one of the things we do is it can be when we start opening this clinic, actually, I mean, we categorically put them as primary care or urgent care clinics, but the clinical scope is actually a lot more extensive than the traditional location. That makes sense. And I know we touched on COVID throughout the episode, but I know, obviously, there's the pop-up clinics around handling COVID capacity. Are there other ways that COVID has been shaping how you're thinking about carbon health in terms of the offerings you're providing for others, as well as your internal company culture and dynamics. 
So COVID has obviously changed a lot of things, and some of these things will probably become permanent. We have, for example, started working remotely since uh, mid-February. And in our services, our, our clinics are still operating, but in person, but we actually decided to try to help respond to the COVID pandemic very early. As early as I think first or February, our pre-appointment scheduling intake system caught that there were people who were coming from Wuhan, China and getting carried at our clinics. So, and that was a time where like the government didn't kind of seem to really pay attention, but we were paying attention. So we had all these patients that we wanted to test, but CDC was exclusively, and if they did not come from like Wuhan, China direct, it wasn't even available for them. But we actually built a remote monitoring system. So we actually, we, if we couldn't get them tested, we could actually remotely track their symptoms. And one of those patients ended up becoming the, one of the first community spread patients like that we recognized. So we have essentially gotten on the taking this seriously very, very early on. Honestly, we took it more, way more seriously than the government did. So, and what really kind of happened this year is we responded to this pandemic in a dozen different, really innovative ways. We launched, as an example, we launched, we were one of the first places to offer testing publicly. We tested half a million people in our kind of, by our small team. We have your at-home testing kits. We developed trailers so that we can go to underserved communities in California who were, some of those communities had 20% positivity rate when we went them. So we had essentially this kind of, this help calls coming from every like county really. We also started covering a lot of government initiatives. So San Francisco City, LA, Alameda County. So make sure essentially provide that really widely accessible testing with their funding, being really screening all the nursing homes. And again, that was another thing that before, before there was even CARES Act, we decided that if a nursing home has an outbreak, that's really bad. That's like, that we just don't want to see it. Like we are, at the end of the day, our team is made of people who care about healthcare and doctors, nurses, like nobody wants to see the fatality that you see in the out, like a nursing uh, home outbreak. So whenever any nursing home had an issue, they would actually call us and we would send a team to just go screen the entire population. And then over time, CARES Act came and the local government started actually funding this program and they expanded it. But we actually jumped on a lot of these things way before anybody even asked us to do them. And as a result, what really happened is, so and most of these things were not even like commercial things. We were losing money on almost all those initiatives. We were providing fever to care for patients with COVID-related symptoms. So what happened is our communities really started appreciating the work we were doing. And since like the... Second order impact of that is now like hundreds of clinicians started applying to carbon. They said, because that was the time where all the providers were shutting down clinics, reducing hours, ton of clinical workers were laid off, their shifts were reduced, some of them, their pay was reduced. While that was happening, we were out there trying to help with our teams. And then we just got so many applications that just hiring became like completely flipped. And now I think at the given time, we had, I think 300 people who are applying to clinical jobs which don't even exist today. So they're literally just joining the truth to join the company. So the first thing we said was like clinical people really loved what you were doing. That really solved like one piece of the equation. And then the patients started really appreciating what you were doing because really the carbon's mission completely clicked with the need during the pandemic. Right? Because there were these healthcare disparities like in the United States, like they're happening around forever, but just COVID 
expose them further. It, it just put them into the spotlight. And then we were the company which is already designed like for four years, optimized to be able to do things like this. And all of a sudden, just the need and our ability kind of click there. And we really grew, like the two-year-old group came in one year to us. So, but as I said, like the most important thing was it just made what we are, like there's a reason we started this company and that reason became far more obvious to everybody this year. I love what you shared about how Carbon's mission fed into what COVID revealed about what's been true in the United States and I would imagine countries all over the world for generations of the disparities around access and quality and affordability of care. And I'd love to also pick your brain on how you see potential policy dynamics in the United States shifting with the new Biden presidency and also a bigger public sense of outcry or at least momentum around the fact that there needs to be a difference in the way healthcare is provided for in the U.S. So we are, as you might imagine, following this very closely because the policy and healthcare touch each other very heavily. And you can argue these days, the biggest bipartisan concern is healthcare. There are partisan concerns about immigration and other stuff, but the one piece that everybody is really roughly on the same page is the need for more healthcare accessible thing. So, and I would, I would just say that like, there were some actually interesting things that happened in the even current administration, like individual coverage plans. So there was some movement. And as I said, even the ACA, let's remember, it was a bipartisan network, right? So it actually passed with support from both sides. We we're not looking at a kind of directly political angle, but what we, the things we are observing, first, Biden administration, the new administration seems to be a lot more focused on having a centralized response. This is definitely something we are welcoming. I think we firsthand observed the chaos that comes from having every state, every county be a different system. And like Carbon right now has a couple hundred places that we have been taken for reporting purposes. So that's a massive overhead on the healthcare providers like us. So I think a centralized support, like centralized system, centralized plan is definitely the right thing to do. And the countries which deal best with this have very centralized approach. That's one of the things which we are seeing uh, the changes in. The other thing I'm personally very excited about is just the improvements, the iteration, like essentially next generation of Affordable Care Act. So Affordable Care Act already brought a lot of healthcare access to a ton of people who did not really have access before, but it wasn't perfect. So just like the first version of any product, there were some assumptions which didn't turn out to be true. So certain parts of it didn't maybe the work is expected, but the core idea I think is going to continue and hopefully it's going to be available to more people. There are still demographics, like we just cannot serve as carbon, and that's what hurts us. Like we literally hate the fact that in certain states, for example, we cannot accept Medicaid. Like that's because their reimbursement comes in 18 months, and it's just like economy, like not viable for a for-profit company to do this. Like non-profits at least get federal support, but we don't get those federal supports. But there are things like this that has to be improved and made more accessible. Like I believe like every child has to have like great healthcare access at the very least. Um, I think this, this, some of those uh, improvements, like we're welcoming, but as I said, I actually do believe there'll be bipartisan support for most of those, for most of the initiatives. I think you're absolutely right. It's healthcare is one of those things that everyone needs. It there sort of is no political bias on either side of that equation. And I know one mm-hmm. question that's been top of mind for some healthcare professionals is sort of what legal aspects are likely to persist that were authorized temporarily during the COVID 
episode that may persist sort of afterwards. Do you have a perspective on that in terms of what things you think may stay, what things may subsist, and what you would want to look for in the near-term future? I think one thing that we were very excited about and the older community, the ecosystem seems to be excited about is this idea of removing the state barriers for licensing so a provider can easily provide care to all the every single state. That's what everybody thinks is going to stick, but actually, like from my perspective, yeah, it doesn't feel like that is going to stick because it, not every state has even accepted that. And even when they accept it, they're really limited. And there are things like malpractice, which is an issue. So I actually don't believe like a true cross-state licensing thing is going to work out uh, because there are some like structural uh, challenges there. The change I'm actually that which I think is even more, far more even more important is. So many people have lost their jobs at the height of it was 45 million people. Healthcare today, especially reimbursement today, is too tightly coupled with employment. And that's a problem. It's a problem because a lot of people have lost their jobs. That's a problem because more and more people are going from full-time jobs to a gig economy type of like a flexible work, which doesn't allow, like which doesn't really have any way to a medically insured. So um, and also, like, even just besides those, like, we, every millennial changes locations and jobs every two years. You can't really, like, rely on employment to kind of have a continuous reimbursement system. And, like, you don't, don't really want to be switching plans so often because that, that actually, each time you are switching plans, that's an opportunity for some sort of, like, prior healthcare-based discrimination. I know that, they, like, ACA somewhat tries to regulate it, but still, these things can happen and do happen. So I think really, to decoupling employment and insurance is the right kind of way to go. And we actually, I think we are going to be seeing that trend. We are, both the old administration had some work and new administration already has some plans in that direction. So, like somebody has to figure out at the very least, like how these millions of people working in gig economy companies get medically insured because there's no legal like structure to be able to do that. Definitely. And especially seeing some of those divides be exacerbated by COVID so the Uber workers or the other folks who don't have traditional healthcare but may be impacted by COVID, sort of where do they turn and what that ultimate cost is for society? Because at the end of the day, we won't need to provide healthcare treatment for them as well. And here to tie off our piece focusing on healthcare specifically, love to ponder a bit about whether or not you're optimistic about 2021 and beyond with the short-term reforms we've talked about around policies and providers getting more nimble around providing services for folks, but also with things like the progress on the vaccines and the, the authorizations from the FDA. I'm extremely optimistic, and it's not primarily policy-driven. If anything, I think the weakness of United Care is, so United States public health system pushed the private companies to just like do a lot more than they would normally be doing. So... I think really a five to 10 year of biotech innovation has happened in one year now. And so much more money is invested in the area. Because if you think about COVID, it was the one problem that the most people at any time in civilization have worked on the same time. Number of people who are trying to help with the pandemic, no other time in humanity's history, so many people, so many brains have thought about similar problems. I think that actually is going to have very long-term impacts. All of a sudden, investors are far more interested in healthcare problems, not just because they think it's a good business, just because now they've been thinking about healthcare more often. They now saw like observe things that well, they hadn't observed before. So I believe this is when COVID is somewhat managed, we'll have 
like several decades of like acceleration in the innovation side of the things. And that is going to have very positive returns to the, to the method. I mean, we lost a lot during this pandemic and we are still losing that. I think the acceleration of innovation is going to have a much more longer term positive impact. That's great. I think there is definitely a lot of positive shift and a mindset shift too around appreciating care and thinking about how we can make things better because we do see the cracks in the system. And you're right. I don't think there's been such a challenge that all of mankind is united against. And when we put in that much effort, the pathways of interventions that can be successful are monumentous. Like just, you know, who's heard of developing a vaccine and distributing it with less than a year of time passing. And now I'd love to pivot towards your thoughts on just general leadership advice and how you would guide others, especially our listeners who are young professionals and others in the healthcare industry to navigate their careers and also learn about opportunities at Carbon Health. And so to kick us off, I'd love for you to share some general advice or key learnings that you've had throughout your career, especially given the fact that you've had to overcome so much and Mm -hmm. especially starting companies where you have unique challenges and how you thought about that and what you would impart to our listeners. The high level advice I will give is you want to be working on a problem that you just wake up thinking about. So, and it's really like something you do care about. Whether you start a company, join a company, do nonprofit work, that is very critical. So I, in early days of carbon, a lot of investors would ask me, they would say like, why don't you, like, if this is a better experience, why don't you make the premium service? And I would say, I've never woken up wondering how rich people would have better healthcare. So, but what you're working on is interesting, like for me. And the other thing is actually, you just want to sit around people who also care. So we genuinely care about the problems that you are solving. And this is like carbon health. I think the way, one way we, I feel so lucky is that what we do for business and with altruistic goals we had, like overlap so much, you don't really have to just have a nonprofit arm to make this interesting. We actually like what we do like every day in an everyday basis, like, and you follow a bunch of our clinical workers who are working under the rain and kind of fog and fire, like so smog. So like it's just you see how passionate they are, like that kind of passion is very contagious. And that's why like we actually have some our videos really drive this. So one of the videos we have is like pretend karma exists. Just believe that if you just do the right thing consistently, it comes back to you as a business, right? So don't have you don't have to calculate it. So those kind of videos, and the other video we have is just kind of very interesting here. Here is like really respecting the craft, the craft of the physician, the engineer, the designer, the data science person, the business person, the operator. So I think like we really respect the craft, and that that's one of the things that our, our team likes a lot. So we are hiring uh, very aggressively, as you might imagine. We went from 100 people to 1,000 this year. So next year will be 4,000 people. So we really need talent all across the board from. The best business people, finance, operations, uh, technology, design, machine learning, data science, clinical jobs, so marketing. Like, if you like telling the story, like, so you really can need like more and more people. Really, the only commonality we are looking for is like having genuine passion towards helping fix the healthcare disparities in this country today and the entire world one day. I love what you've touched on across this episode around the culture and really what makes people who work at Carbon Health the same, which is this drive towards making things better. It sounds like that's a ubiquitous part of the Carbon Health company and culture. And I think you can see it through every single department from the clinicians who are 
boots on the ground, to the people who are crunching the numbers, to everyone and to yourself. So I feel that energy exude. And I think that's definitely something for our listeners to know that the passion, the mission is very much a, a core part of Carbon House overall yeah. mission. Yeah, I think it, it probably comes up like I'm far more proud of the team we brought together, the people, like the sameness of like certain things like the, the passion, but the diversity of the actual people like behind it, right? So we have I think 70% of women are fairly diverse, like ethnically, like uh, fairly diverse in terms of backgrounds. Uh, so it is a great like group of people to like be around. Your listeners have a lot of probably people who, who do care. So I think people who listen to podcasts in general are people who care about this type of problem. So I think a lot of them will, will enjoy being a part of Carbon. That's great. And to wrap up our episode today, I also want to hear your thoughts on how you're managing your personal health. I know you provide that care to a lot of people, but oftentimes we tend to neglect ourselves. So what are some things that you do to make sure that you're as capable as you can be given all the different responsibilities and things that you're juggling? Yeah, I don't know whether I'm in the place to lecture about self-care because I have three small babies, <laughs> but two and a half years old, twins, and a one-year-old baby. So for self-care, please don't have three babies under two years old. <laughs> so that's bad advice to what I did there. So, but aside from that, I think compared to the stress of, like, especially if you are in the founder type positions, but your job is stressful enough. Like, it's just better to not pass it to your home. So I think I still like spending a lot of time with the family, with the kids. I still spend time just like socializing my friends, even under COVID. So three days I had my friends come online to play a game together. So then all everybody's kids like sleep. So nice to like have fun in the kind of moments you can find. So aside from that, I think like these days I, I'm not doing as well in terms of the exercise part of the world. But <laughs> this, like, yeah. Interaction, I think you're not realizing that social interaction is as important to your like self-care as pretty much anything else. Absolutely. Are you playing chess with your friends or have you started we, other games? Because you've yeah, them we all do, the time. Yeah, we do. We do actually. We're <laughs> playing chess. Uh, we play FIFA, this like soccer game occasionally. We have some of the company gaming events. Uh, I think virtual communication and gaming is a really nice background activity. That's awesome. Maybe uh, that'll be the next startup for you, just something connecting people around remote opportunities. I actually did consider to build something over the weekend. So, uh, <laughs> just, uh, just to help uh, like our teams to kind of feel more connected when everybody's working from home. Absolutely. That's a sign of a serial entrepreneur. I love the energy and, and the creativity. To learn about career opportunities at Carbon Health, please visit carbonhealth.com.